Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. It really does help us and makes more people aware of the show. On this episode, we're going to discuss some of the events that are being commemorated this year, the 100th anniversaries that are coming up in 2021. Hello, John. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Carl. If it is a happy new year in January 2021. I know. We, we thought this year would be all out for it and we'd be back to normal, but... Things have just seemed to get crazier and crazier. Yep. Well, it's just uh, not for us to say, is it? Beyond our, beyond our ken. Let's just stick to the history. Exactly. So that is the thing. We've discussed this a fair few times over the last year and more, the decade of centenaries. And 2021 is probably some of the biggest ones and most controversial ones. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've got... The climax of the War of Independence, we've got the bloodiest period of the War of Independence in the spring and summer of 1921. We have the truce of July 11th, 1921, which ended the fighting. In the War of Independence, we have the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament, which is one of the dates at which partition was made real, uh, although not the final act. And to cap it all off, of course, we have the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which was signed on December the 6th, 1921. Uh, which created the Irish Free State. And of course, that, that was in itself a very divisive act. So we've got plenty uh, of centenaries coming up if people are still paying attention, I think. As always said, like commemoration isn't solely about the things that were commemorating 100 years ago. It's also about the present context. So how do you think the present context is going to affect the commemorations and the events that we are commemorating? I mean, commemoration is all about the present and, and how that you fit a message about the past into the present. And that's why I'm always uneasy about it. And some people are getting upset with me online for saying that I don't think we're necessarily getting good history out of commemorations. But what I mean by that is not that we shouldn't be doing public talks and so on like that. What I mean is that history is all about trying to understand the past. And the past is very complex. It's just as complex as now. We have limited, even for very recent events like this, we've limited sources limited knowledge of, of what can happen and we have to be prepared to deal with a lot of complexities and contradictions now commemorations about the opposite commemoration is about a simple clear message about what the past means for the present it has to be but it's not necessarily conducive to you know a holistic understanding let's say of the past now the present context has changed an awful lot since 2016 since the centenary of the easter rising so this was before brexit while Britain was still in EU, there was no real issue between the border on the island of Ireland 
because there was no border due to the European Union. The only significant difference in terms of trade or movement of people was the difference in currency. And that's changed massively. And we still don't know what the final outcome of Brexit will be. Like at the present time, Great Britain has left the European Union single market and Northern Ireland hasn't. And at the moment, there's all kinds of things like shortages of food deliveries to Northern Ireland because they're being held up in Britain. And this could affect the union between Britain and Northern Ireland in ways that we haven't anticipated yet. It could also affect the border on the island of Ireland in ways we haven't anticipated yet. So you're potentially looking at a much more fraught and aggravated Anglo-Irish relationship than you did in 2016. And that has something to bear in mind. So like, if you think back to 2016, the Irish government, certainly their commemorations were all about this idea of reconciliation that what happened happened, but we're not enemies anymore. It's time to make up. It's time to recover like a shared history. Um, the First World War was used in this way. The participation of Irish people in the First World War was used also to show this shared history as well as the rising and the proclamation of the Republic and stuff. Now, there's a couple of things which make 2021 a lot more fraught. And, and the main thing I think is, is obviously the present circumstances. So, well, for one thing, I mean, the government's not gonna be thinking much about commemorations. They're gonna be thinking of how can we get out of this pandemic, number one, how can we deal with Brexit and try to normalize relations uh, with Britain and, and on the island too. But three, I mean, you know, the Anglo-Irish war, war of independence, Tan War, call it what you will, was an especially polarized time. There wasn't a sense of shared history or there wasn't a sense of everyone did right according to their lights, to quote James Connolly. It was a period of stark enmities, of stark conflict, Anglo-Irish conflict. It was also a conflict inside Ireland, especially in the north, where you had quite a vicious communal conflict. That was mostly the aspect of the war of independence in the north. You also had people in the south who were still loyal to the British connection, and not only traditional unionists, but people who served in the RIC, also people who acted as informants to crown forces for a range of motives, not all of them political, but, you know, around 200 of them were killed. And so it's a conflicted, fraught time. Now, one message you can take from this, and message that would have been taken, say, 50 years ago, probably, or a bit longer, you know, allowing for the Northern Troubles, but a message that would have been taken at that time would have been, well, this was our fight for independence, uh, we're going to gloss over, or we're going to try to avoid the nastier, the messier parts, and just talk about, we were right, we got independence, we won. Now, that's not really sustainable today in light of the complexity kind of of the independence period and the way that it finished. Like it didn't finish in independence of all of the island and it didn't finish with everybody accepting that the treaty was a great thing either. So it, it presents a very fraught series, I would say, of commemorations if people are, are going to kind of commit to them wholeheartedly. Well, it's funny really that a lot of the British problems regarding Brexit seem to be things that they didn't foresee whatsoever in terms of relationships between Britain and Northern Ireland, the North and South of Ireland, the North of Ireland and Europe. And perhaps that leads into the fact that Britain haven't really paid much attention to this decade of centenaries. As you mentioned there, a lot of it seemed to be about reconciliation and discussing the shared history of Britain and Ireland. But Britain don't seem to have been paying much attention really in general to this decade of centenaries. I mean, there has been some engagement. And if you look at the BBC, for example, like Michael Portillo made quite a good documentary on BBC about the Easter Rising. And, you know, we talked about stuff that was discreditable to the British side as well, like the massacre on North King Street of civilians, for example, and, you know, the British failure of intelligence that led up to the Rising and so on. 
And there has been, you know, some intelligent commentary in Britain. Uh, yeah, most of it he glossed over. I mean, the problems with Brexit, of course, go much deeper. I mean, I, I don't think if the British had been paying great attention to our decade of centenaries, they, they would have avoided these problems with Brexit because the problems are that um, we still don't probably understand the people who were behind Brexit from the start and what their agenda was and is because, you know, the things that they said at the time of the referendum are not what they've delivered. They've delivered something different. So it does make me wonder what the agenda was from, from day one there. But I think there's a wider problem of, of um, after the Good Friday Agreement, I think, with regard to Northern Ireland, it was very much out of sight, out of mind. Like Tony Blair is very much the last Prime Minister to have taken an interest in Northern Ireland. And if you look at the people who got the job of Northern Secretary afterwards, especially in recent years, many of them openly said they didn't know anything about Northern Ireland. So it's not surprising in, in that sense that, you know, they, they failed to foresee all the problems that Brexit would bring. With, with regard to Northern Ireland, now there's also going to be problems in, in Britain itself regarding supply chain and trade that were foreseeable, but were not foreseen, I would say. Well, isn't that the thing then, that history does have a role and a very important role from understanding the past, you can understand the present. And I think we mentioned it before that with the 100th anniversary of the home rule crisis, there was very, very little coverage in Britain about that. And that's not just an Irish issue. Obviously, we're going to have a really big interest in, in these type of things, but it is a central issue to British history at the time and possible civil war in the United Kingdom just before the First World War kicks off. And maybe if they did look a bit more backwards and people say that like Irish people refuse to forget history, maybe if in Britain they remembered history a bit more, it couldn't hurt. Yeah, I and mean, that's the old saying. Someone said that in the late 19th century, didn't they? That Irish history is something the Irish should forget and the British should remember. With regard to the current crisis and the home rule crisis, like the only thing about that is obviously that would have been a much bigger deal had the First World War not broken out and distracted everybody. Like it was a potentially a very serious crisis in British politics where the Conservative Party were, you know, dallying with illegal paramilitaries in, in Ulster and also, you know, elements of the army, which were, you know, strongly conservative as well, were basically refusing to obey orders. So, yeah, it was... That was potentially a really serious crisis in British politics. And yeah, it's it probably should be accorded more place. But like I said, the First World War did break out. Everyone forgot about it. So, you know, I, I'm not sure where to come down on that one. But that's the thing when we talk about commemoration and it being like, say, for example, in America, when they had the 200th anniversary of 1776, there was a definite narrative there. Everyone in America could say, we had our fight for freedom, we founded a new country, and everyone could sort of get on board with this. Where it's so, so complicated in Ireland, they have all these different groupings, sometimes completely at odds, unionists, nationalists, Republicans. It's not an easy narrative at all. Yeah, but that's a good point to make, Cole, about the comparison with 1976 in America, but that there is a political choice. So, for example, in the American Revolution, I think something like 40% of the colonists were pro-British at the time, or Tories, as they called them, in North America at the time of the American Revolution. Obviously, the Native Americans, the Indians, as they were called at the time, they didn't profit from the revolution. Most of them were pro-British at the time. And then you have the question of slavery. So the reality of it was complicated, but the political choice in 1976 was not to look into those complexities too much and to just talk about the founding of America and the founding of democracy and so on. And I think, if I recall correctly, it was bound up with this kind of healing process after the Vietnam War and the divisions of that era. But that, this, these are political choices. So, I mean, the Irish government could go for that. 
they probably don't want to go for a simplistic kind of nationalist reading of the Irish War of Independence for a number of reasons. But it's more so that it doesn't fit into what the political people need in terms of the present climate, rather than Irish history being more complicated than everybody else's. I think everybody's history is complicated and conflicted. Well, it really is impossible in an Irish sense to do that because the treaty isn't the end point where everyone celebrates the fact that Ireland now has independence because Ireland is partitioned. A huge amount of people aren't happy with the treaty settlement. Even people who support the treaty settlement aren't particularly enthusiastic about aspects of it. And um, it leads on to much more problems as well with the civil war. Exactly. Yeah, the treaty is going to be incredibly difficult for them to commemorate because, like you said, it's really difficult to, to even choose a message, you know, to commemorate. Like I said, the commemoration is always about messaging in the present and having a clear, simple message and narrative. And you can't have that of the treaty. Like it's, it's obviously it's splintered. Like the main political parties and political forces in the south of Ireland were, were totally split over it. So, yeah, that's going to be incredibly difficult. But before we ever get there, I think the most divisive one will probably be the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament in June of 1921, the centenary of that. And maybe we could talk about that in a Northern Ireland context. So many people talk about the fact that at the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament, the King made his famous speech about reconciliation and Irishmen from all over the island and different political traditions joining hands because they all love Ireland and want a future where uh, all the enmities are put in the past. But this is rarely remembered that in terms of the Government of Ireland Act, there was an idea from some sections that this would eventually lead to reunification, that this wasn't a permanent partition. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the British idea. Like, remember that the British project for the whole period, which partly failed, was that they would give limited self-government to all of Ireland. And the thing about the North was not so much that they wanted to retain the North, they wanted to retain the whole thing, basically, but just give it some sort of self-government. And they had to accommodate the Unionists in the North with a special arrangement because they had such powerful friends in the British establishment, in the Conservative Party, and the military and so on. But, you know, the Austrian Unionists themselves viewed it as a very different way. Initially, they didn't want home rule at all. Of course, they didn't want home rule for any of Ireland. Secondly, they didn't want home rule for Ulster. They were hoping if they couldn't exclude all of Ireland from home rule, they'd exclude Ulster at least. And finally, they came around to this idea of they were going to accept their own home rule. So, you know, it's been remarked upon that at the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliaments, there was, you know, triumphal unionists demonstrations with people walking around with banners saying we won't have home rule and of course the irony was that's exactly what they were getting but just in a, in a six county context and of course on the ground regardless of the king's speech and the king's speech was not written by him and there's there's a lot of very kind of naive stuff in the past being written about the king's speech as if the king initiated the peace process the king's speech was written by lord george and jan smuts as a part of a choreography to get towards the truce in the south actually but Reconciliation was not how partition was experienced in the North. I mean, it was a time of bitter conflict on the ground. Like, but after the opening of the Parliament, but the day before the truce on July the 11th, 1921, was Belfast Bloody Sunday, where there was an IRA ambush of a, a police armoured car on Raglan Street. And the following day, there was these widespread riots across West Belfast, where, you know, the police and the loyalists, armed fighters, let's say, not all of them were organised paramilitaries, you know, attempted to break into the Catholic neighborhoods and the IRA defended them as best they could. The British army, um, to their credit, did their best to kind of separate the two sides in some places. But there was 16 people killed in one day, hundreds wounded by gunfire 
hundreds of houses burned down. And this was the reality of the opening of Northern Ireland. It wasn't it wasn't reconciliation on the ground. Well, that is the thing as well. And we've done episodes about this, the Belfast pogroms. But if COVID didn't exist and we were able to have like normal commemorations, we would be talking about like Weaver Street. We would be talking about like there would be commemorations for, uh, you know, the shipyard workers who were killed on the trams. And I think, especially in the South, there's not a lot of people are aware of the level of violence in that two year period in Belfast and the surrounding areas. Yeah, I mean, one area where the historiography has definitely made progress on the War of Independence is on the North. So we now know a lot more about what was happening in the North. And there was, as you say, a lot of very ugly incidents. I don't know how much of it has really percolated down to popular consciousness in the South. However, I think there's a, a growing kind of consciousness among Northern nationalists, like reclaiming this story. I mean, one of the kind of standout things about the centenary of the Northern Ireland Parliament's foundation is that nationalists, even moderate nationalists in the North, have steadfastly refused to participate in any way. And what this is really is, I won't say a step backwards, because obviously that's kind of judgmental, but like it's a reflection of the very early years of partition where all nationalists, including the Nationalist Party, so the Northern Rump of the IPP, refused to engage in, in the Northern state at all, refused to attend its parliament, its county councils, were recognized by the Free State in the early years in 1922. Nationalist teachers were taking their salaries from Michael Collins' provisional government. So in, in some ways, what you're seeing is, is nationalists like reverting to this really hard line, you know, refusal to recognize the validity of the Northern State in refusing to attend the commemorations of the parliament. Well, there was a big launch uh, a while ago there about like Northern Ireland 100 and like those images of Seamus Heaney and famous Northerners over the years and it didn't catch on and as you say there the SDLP or the Nationalist Sinn Féin refused to have any involvement in it now you could understand why they wouldn't want to celebrate you know the founding of Northern Ireland or the fact that it's existed for a hundred years but there must be ways that everybody in the north can be involved in the historical commemoration and what way could that happen because it affects everybody it's a it's, it's a thing that had an enormous effect on everyone who lived in the six counties at that time how could nationalists be involved in commemorating it or is yeah, that i don't think it is in really in many ways um in like it, it goes back to your understanding of commemoration though doesn't it so if commemoration is about saying, this was a good thing, these are our forefathers, this is the founding of our state. No, nationalists are obviously against that. They don't see it as their state. They don't think it should exist. So, and there's very little way to square that circle. It, it's a problem in terms of this idea of commemoration. If we're talking about like historical discussions, uh, let's all get together and talk about it. Yeah, um, that may be good work, but like that's not really commemoration to my understanding of the term. Yes, because you know, with the 100th anniversary of the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant, you had that commemoration as celebration. Like there was a huge march from the Orange Order. There was events, I believe, up in Stormont. And it's not something that everyone's going to get on board. But as an event in and of itself, it's of huge importance to everyone who lives in the North, whatever yeah. their politics. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, yeah, what you saw back then in 2012, 
it had a lot to do with the context was a lot less fraught though I think even though you had things like the flag protests at the time in, in the north you didn't have what you have now which is people saying is Northern Ireland going to be here in 10 years time you know that wasn't an issue in 2012 and so I think people at that time were happy to say well you have your commemorations we won't take part but we'll have ours in 2016 and in the meantime we can get together and we can have nice discussions about how we have shared history and with the border again a live issue I think that's becoming increasingly difficult to do like even if there wasn't COVID I don't know if you could have shared commemorations today and not necessarily because people are out ready to kill each other because they're not and not because the border's going to collapse tomorrow because it's not but it's a live issue again and I think that makes the context a lot more fraught and this is as a result of, of Brexit. But is that an integral part of commemoration? Hearing different voices, different opinions and views, where something like, like, can we commemorate signing up the treaty without, you know, hearing as much from people who are deeply opposed to it as people who support it? And same with commemorating the founding of the Northern Ireland Parliament. What type of commemoration is it if we only hear from people who viewed this as uh, the culmination of Ulster Unionism, the successful creation of their own parliament, especially in terms of Northern Ireland, because it really wasn't. It wasn't unionism up to that point about no home rule for any part of Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was alluding to before. That's the, the irony of it. I mean, I, I really don't know if you can have, you know, a commemoration of people who diametrically disagree with the point at issue, you know. Let's put it this way, though. I mean, again, commemoration, and Laura McAtackney made this point the other week when we were discussing with her and Brian Hanley, commemoration is always about the present. It's, it's not about the past. It's about how the past is useful for the present. In a fraud context, in a situation where people are talking again about border poll, possibly the end of Northern Ireland, it's not possible, I don't think, no, to have a shared message about the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament. I don't think. That's just my view. Regarding the treaty, um, again, it'll be very difficult. I mean, again, you, you need a shared message, even if it's a very woolly message or whatever. Can you have an inclusive commemoration of the treaty? Only if you agree on the present, I would say. And especially with the rise of Sinn Féin, modern Sinn Féin isn't necessarily about militant republicanism in terms of its popular support. But I think with the rise of Sinn Féin in the South, you're going to see a lot more kind of hard-edged and nasty debates about the Civil War than you would have otherwise, which... It's a shame, but I think, you know, you have to look these things in the face. You have to say, well, this is what I think. I, I disagree with you. I don't think we would be tremendously well served by having some sort of cobbled together commemoration where there's no message. You know, I don't see, I don't see what use that serves either. Well, towards the end of 2020, we had almost coming up every fortnight, big events, commemorations. We had Kilmichael, Balbriggan, Bloody Sunday in Crow Park. And this continues on into 1921 so there's going to be a couple of big events coming up over the next six months before we get to the anniversary of the truce can you talk about some of them john yeah well bad as 1920 was and 1920 in some ways the latter part of 1920 was the worst for you know the black and tans and police reprisals like kind of indiscriminate reprisals like bloody sunday like the burning of cork the sack of Balbriggan, and all the other towns like trim Trum, mallow and so on but 1921, the first six months or seven months of 1921 was the bloodiest part. More people were killed. Like there was an average of 40 people a week being killed in political violence. And so, you know, you, you will have a range of very bloody events coming up. So February, for example, you will have 
for instance, the Upton ambush in County Cork, where the IRA opened fire on a train carrying British troops and they killed six civilians. The IRA were killed in the ambush. They also went in February the Clamult ambush, where a IRA column in North Cork of number one brigade was surrounded by a party of military and auxiliaries, and 12 of them were killed. Seven of them were shot by the auxiliaries after they surrendered. You have the Drumkeen ambush uh, around the same time in County Limerick, where 12 RIC, including black and tan recruits, were killed again, some of them after surrendering. You have Belfast Bloody Sunday, which I've already referenced. It's a really bloody series of riots, and you know they continue for more than one day. You have the burnings of the Customs House in Dublin, so a major IRA operation where they burned down the centre of local government. Five IRA were killed, 80 captured. And you have the killing of about 200 informers in the south. So like you know, the deliberate killing of 200 civilians by the IRA. And you also have hundreds of civilians killed by Crown Forces. Yeah, I think uh, three to 400 civilians killed by Crown Forces at the time as well. It's the nature of guerrilla war, I suppose. But you have an, a series of, of very bloody events and, and they're going to follow in quick succession if people want to commemorate them or, or relive them as, as they've been doing up to now. Well, as we talk about their commemoration, but, you know, another word as well, remembrance. Like we've seen it particularly in Crow Park on the 100th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, that a huge amount of that commemoration was about remembrance and remembering the victims. And I think there is plans on the 100th anniversary of the truce to remember every single person who lost their life during the War of Independence. And, you know, we're getting back to the Remembrance Wall in Glasnevin. We will be remembering a lot of perpetrators as well as victims. So it's, it's still going to be quite contentious. And will that type of, let's remember everybody, will that work? No, I mean, it might work if you don't pay too much attention to it, in a sense. Like, I mean, I believe the government just has a plan for service on July 11th for all the victims of the, the conflict. And I would say that's fair enough from the point of view of, you know, the frame of reconciliation. I mean, we don't learn an awful lot from it. Where it gets problematic is when you, you know, you take a deep dive into it and you have, for example, this glass Nevin wall, where you're going to put up like the names of the auxiliaries, like maybe the auxiliaries who executed the men at Clonmold, for example, were later killed. I'm not sure if they were or not, but let's say that their names are going to go up. British soldiers killed at things like the Cross Barry ambush and the Headford ambush, where you have dozens of soldiers killed between the two. They're all going to go up. You know, the IRA who were executed, like there's, I think, 14 executed in 1921 and by hanging and by firing squad, they're going to be right beside them. The people killed on Belfast Bloody Sunday are the victims in the north going to be on the Glasnevin wall. You know, so it doesn't withstand an awful lot of scrutiny that in that kind of all in remembrance. It works for kind of a bland statement, I think, but not not in detail, perhaps. Yes. And that's the thing that like, you know, everything is about context and they're not events, individual events, completely removed from the context of their time. And as you said there about like the founding of Stormont, like, you know, are we going to be able to remember that in the context of all the violence that was happening at the same time in Belfast? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, the people also of, uh, of another bent, let's say the, the so-called revisionist bent in the South will say, well, you know, like you're going to have commemorations, even though they might be very muted due to COVID, but about the Crossbury ambush, the Hedford ambush, you know, Drumkeen ambush, where the IRA were successful, Clon Finn up in County Longford, and you will have commemorations by local groups. And so people will say, well, what about the victims of those ambushes? You know, some of them were Irish and RAC men. What about the IRA killing of informers? So there's also going to be this debate about if you should be celebrating violence at all. <laughs> you know, it, it does come back to this idea of like, if you start off with the idea of commemoration, where it must be about a single message, it must be about good and bad, you know, you know, you're going to have a for a messy period like this, a period of conflict, it, it's going to be very difficult. 
Now, I, you know, to kind of avoid repeating myself all the time and to avoid saying we should just ignore it, I think really think the best way is to, first of all, have content and events where we, is first of all, establish kind of what happened, you know, as best we can. I mean, I'm very old fashioned about this, but like an awful lot of bad history and an awful lot of these kind of hysterical debates start from a very bad starting point, which is that very partial knowledge of, of what happened. So let's first of all talk about what happened and, you know, in a kind of a calm way, because uh, we're not actually reliving 100 years ago. It doesn't work like that. Like the ghosts of 1921 don't reappear. Let's talk about it calmly. Let's try to establish, especially for the public, more or less what happened. And then let's talk about it. And people are allowed to have different views. I guess my, my central point would be, though, I'm not sure the commemoration as conventionally understood is, is a very good way to approach these centenaries. Let's say a historical approach, an inclusive approach, leaving aside the kind of the commemorative things, parades, public events, marches, might be a better way to proceed. So this is an important thing as well, because when we get to the summer, then we're going to be talking about the truce. It's really the peace process that leads to the treaty. But how do we get to the point where there is a truce between the British government and the Dáil and the Republican movement? Well, you have to remember that there was a behind the scenes peace process the whole time. There was contact established between Arthur Griffith, who was the acting head of the Republic when Eamon de Valera was in America, and Lloyd George, who was the British Prime Minister, from October 1920 and possibly earlier, because in April 1920, this whole civil service of Dublin Castle had been revamped and all these top civil servants from Britain had been sent over. And one of them, Andy Cope, who had been a customs detective, was sent with the job of establishing kind of clandestine contacts with the enemy, if you like, with, with the Dáil and with the Republicans. And via, among other things, an MP called Cockrell and an Irishman living in London, you know, back channels were opened between Griffith and Lloyd George in October 1920. These were temporarily derailed by the events of Bloody Sunday. Griffith himself was arrested by the British military. But they started again via the Bishop Clune in December of 1920. And basically, British and, and very much urged by these civil servants in Dublin were prepared to offer Dominion Home Rule, which is a big advance on the Home Rule offered back in 1912 in something approaching the free state, which was given in 1921. And Collins and Griffith, who at this time were basically the heads of the Republican movement, said that they were you know, prepared to accept this. They were prepared to accept the solutions short of a republic in return for an end of violence. Now, it was scuppered because in 1920, the Chief Secretary Greenwood, the head of police, Tudor, and the military, McCready, and especially Henry Wilson, who was um, the head of all Imperial Armed Forces, you know, were dead set against a ceasefire until the IRA surrendered their arms first. So that was a false start in December. But all the time, basically, you already had the genesis of a, a, a solution by then, you know, that home rule was going to be offered. And the violence, in a way, you know, was about both sides jockeying for position. And both sides knew this. Like, for example, the Customs House raid was Eamon de Valera's way of showing that the IRA was capable of mounting major operations still in May 1921, that they weren't beaten, as the British government and press were saying. So... By May 1921, like one of the things as well about, for example, the Customs House raid is these civil servants I'm talking about, John Anderson, Andy Cope, and Mark Sturgis, were horrified by the Customs House raid, not because they cared about the Customs House building so much, but because they said we were just about to have a ceasefire, and then suddenly they go and do this. They couldn't understand why, which shows to an extent why, in a sense, I mean, there was very real death and violence, but in a sense, the War of Independence was kind of a phony war, you know, because the solution had already been mapped out. It was a question of getting there. 
But the crucial intervention to get over the last line was probably the intervention of Jan Smuts. And Jan Smuts was the Prime Minister of South Africa at the time. He was a former board commander who had participated in the British Union of South Africa afterwards and commanded Imperial forces in Africa during the First World War. And he was asked by the Irish to help mediate this. Smuts, if you like, had sympathies for both sides. He had sympathies for the Irish Republicans as himself, a former rebel against the British Empire. And I think he was still a serving British officer at the time. Smuts, as I said before, helped to draft the King's speech in June of 1921 at the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament, signalling that the British were prepared to talk. Now, the other side to this, Ronan Fanning particularly emphasises this, is that once the Northern Ireland Parliament was open, once the Ulster Unionists had been removed from the equation and all the difficulties that brought a coalition government of Liberals and Conservatives, then the British were prepared to talk to the Republicans in the South, predominantly in the South, about Dominion Home Rule. A lot of people on the British side, the kind of hardliners, and we're talking here including about the Chief Secretary for Ireland, who was Hammer Greenwood, who was bypassed, and Henry Tudor, the Chief of Police, and Wilson, as I said, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, were incensed at the idea that you would negotiate with these rebels before you defeated them. Macready, the Commander-in-Chief, for example, was the opposite. He was much more open to it. And he advised the British government that you have two options here. You can have a war of extermination. So something approaching what they did in South Africa in 1900, which is that you have wholesale internment. You have executions of 100 a month, regular and large-scale executions. You have effectively a total military lockdown of the country. And, you know, you, you raise all the civilian property of any sympathizers with the rebels. So we can do that. You know, that, that would be like the blueprint of a campaign of colonial reconquest. Also, Ireland would become a colony, formally, legally a colony in that case, and colonial rules would apply. Or, because that would be disastrous in terms of public opinion, you can talk. So McCready basically, you know, is drafting this very much from the point of view of it's time to talk. I, I don't want this job of war of extermination. And as I said, on the Irish side, as early as December 1920, you already had Griffith and Collins saying that they were prepared to compromise on this, you know, the ideal or the negotiating point of a republic. So you have Northern Ireland out of the way. The British are prepared, I suppose, to fight a war of extermination in Ireland, but they don't really want to do it. It's politically very costly and probably not worth the result. And the Republicans are also prepared to talk. They're prepared to meet them halfway. And so you get the truce agreed for July 11th, uh, 1921. And as the famous quote goes, like, you know, in Belfast, the truce lasted 12 hours. Yeah, yeah. Roger McCorley has a famous quote about that. He said, you know, the truce in, in Belfast lasts 12 hours only. That's pretty much the case. You know, I mean, one of the things, though, is that Ronan Fanning, for example, is very much of the opinion, the latest story in Ronan Fanning, that Northern Ireland is the big sticking point because you can't give home rule until you've satisfied the Ulster Unionists. But I'm not sure that's quite the case, because even after the truce, for example, you have IRA liaison officers all over Ireland, but including in the north, right? Owen O'Duffy is sent to Belfast and he's the liaison officer and he oversees, like, not a total cessation of violence in Belfast, but a real calming of tensions after the riots around Belfast Bloody Sunday. And so the IRA is formally recognised in the north and the special constabulary was temporarily stood down after the truce. So it's not entirely clear that the British don't think that Northern Ireland can't be included. That's a kind of convoluted way of putting it. But it's, it's not entirely clear that the British think the Northern Ireland thing is permanent. You know, Lloyd George was always just like this, always ducking and diving. Cormac Moore, for example, makes the point in his book that partition or the shape of partition was certainly still up for grabs in the treaty negotiations, which took place in the winter of 1921. He would argue that the shape of partition, like Fermanagh and Tyrone, the nationalist majority counties, and so on, could easily have been ceded to the south at that point. And it's not until November of 1921 
that executive power was given to the Northern Ireland Parliament. Like before that, it was just a, a talking shop, if you will. Well, that's the thing that when we're talking about like events, as you mentioned there earlier, like ambushes and the customs house and, you know, individual events, they're very interesting to look at. And like, you know, you can have different points of view, whatever, but like when you're getting into really complex detail stuff, like truce negotiations and partition and the treaty and the negotiations leading up to the treaty, it is fascinating. There is a lot of information there to deal with. And if there are good events, debates and public events that deal with this or really interesting articles written about it, there's a lot there for people to dig into. Yeah, I think there is. And I mean, I think if I was asked to give people a broad interpretation of the period, I would say that the story forged in the years after independence of the military struggle and that the British have been brought to the negotiating table is very much a half true. And that's why you have such a legends of the ambushes and the successful column commanders like Tom Barry and so on. And we, we've talked about Barry before. I mean, Barry has a reputation which eclipses other people who did just as much as him. Anyway, the idea of the military struggle is kind of a half-truth because the whole thing was about there was going to be some level of self-government granted to Ireland. There was a question of how much. And the bigger story is the choreography that got them there and how much the British were prepared to give in the end and how much they weren't prepared to give. Now, the military aspect in the ambushes and the killings and so on did have an impact. I mean, they, they did force the British to give more than they wanted to. But did they alter the whole trajectory of events? You know, probably not. So the political side, the diplomatic side, in the end, is probably the more important side than the military side. Yes, absolutely. And focusing too much on the military end of things, we then forget other things like the civil aspect of it, the underground government department set up by the doll the role of the labor movement and um, the workers involved in strikes and refusing to handle munitions and also the role of publicity and propaganda and contacts between the dollar and government and different diaspora groups, different independent struggles in other colonial countries abroad. It's very interesting. There's a lot there to look into. There is, there is. And now and now we're getting into kind of real history, which is, you know, where I think obviously the meat is rather than commemorative kind of stuff. But for example, I mean, one of the interesting things I think about the, you know, the civil side, especially the dull courts is you see a lot of the elite of the free state, a lot of the people who were in the top jobs in the free state and the judiciary in ministries and so on. And I'm thinking of people like Patrick Hogan, for example, who was not a Republican, but who served in the dull courts like his brother, James was much more Republican, was an IRA officer, but he was arrested for his part in the Dáil Courts and he becomes the Minister for Agriculture and has a huge role in shaping the free state's kind of economic policies after independence. People like Cahir Davitt, the son of Michael Davitt, but he served as one of the supreme justices of the Dáil Courts. Away from the military side, you probably see the shape of future Irish society much more taking shape than you do on the military side. Another thing about the role of violence in, or the discussion of violence in discussion of this period is it does detract from the overall political picture and, and possibly the, the bigger picture. And I think people on the, again, I don't like to use the word, but the revisionist side are guilty of this as well. So they want to talk about people killed by the IRAs and formers, whether this had a sectarian angle, the killing of ex-servicemen and so on, all of which are true. And also the, you know, the burning of loyalist houses, which became a big thing in the South in 1921. You know, it's fine to talk about these things, but there is a temptation, I think, from people who want to explore these things 
to talk about these divorced from political context to present them as kind of atavistic primitive violent urges with people who wanted to wipe out the enemies of their community and it's not like that you know the the violence occurs in the political context it's much more often i think than people have appreciated ordered you know from the top as well as being initiatives from local commanders but i think there's too much emphasis on this idea that local ira commanders did what they wanted i think all of the violence should be seen in, in this overall kind of political context it's much more illuminating when you look at it in that light well, one of the things you see mentioned sometimes in the media and on Twitter and things like that, and it's come up quite a lot recently, is that we should scrap the decade of centenaries, that it's leading to all this animosity online and it wasn't a good idea to begin with. Now, what do you think about that, John? You know, I mean, I think I've expressed the point that I'm, I'm a little bit equivocal about the idea of commemoration as conventionally understood. It wouldn't bother me if, you know, commemorations in the sense of public marches, parades, all that stuff was scrapped. But I mean, I do think history is very important. And I do think it's a great opportunity for us all to discuss and to understand better our, our history. And I don't think that brings up old animosities at all. I think far from it. I think uh, a better understanding of the past in all its aspects is actually helpful in approaching animosities. And the other thing I, I would say that, you know, Brian Handley talked about this the other week uh, on our last podcast was that animosities are usually the result of the present day anyway you know history can divide people but history is generally not the reason why people fight each other or people fall out with each other it's really about their different positions in the present day and so i don't think scrapping the decade of centenaries is necessarily going to uh, heal divisions either you know i think understanding history and talking about history in a holistic way in a, in a way where people understand each other and understand what they're talking about a lot better would actually be helpful uh, what do you think Carl? No, I think you're right. And when you hear these calls made, not by a lot of people now, but some people who do have influence, it really seems to be, let's ignore history. The events we're talking about are getting too uncomfortable. Uh, we're raising too many uncomfortable issues. Let's just forget about the whole thing. That's not really helpful to suppress debate and interest in events that sometimes are contentious, that sometimes are uncomfortable. But like, very interesting and it's very difficult to understand Irish history until you delve into them. Yeah, and it's kind of anti-democratic, that sentiment as well, isn't it? Yes, it's sort of like these issues are best left to academics and people who understand them, whereas it's not for the great unwashed, that type of attitude. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, that, that kind of was that attitude throughout the Troubles in the South, wasn't it? Yes, and like, you know, that the general public aren't sophisticated enough to understand them or to look back and, you know, tease into these ideas that are complex, but, you know, they're, they're very rewarding when you look into them and they don't necessarily bring up animosities. There's not going to be many pub fights about like the treaty, I think, well, probably I because the pubs no. aren't going to be open at that stage. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, we might be saved from the second civil war due to COVID. Huh? Yeah. But uh, I think especially things like the treaty, because it's such a, a fundamental building block on the, the century that we've just had of Irish history. Surely it's good to really get into details about it and try and understand it. I think so. And I think that's the way to do it rather than commemoration as, as conventionally understood. I don't think the normal template of commemoration will really work for something like the treaty. No. And, you know, we're not just dealing with commemorating the Treaty of 1921 when we talk about the treaty. 
just like all the events of the following 18 months, but there's also all the events of 10 years later and the stepping stone approach of Fianna Fáil and Bun Rock Nehran in 1937. So like, you know, there's a lot of interesting things that one leads into another. Yeah, and I mean, the final thing I'd like to say, I think about this is when you try to discuss that period, the treaty and the civil war, especially online, but also in person, it's very often brought back to this very kind of binary thing of, right, who was right, Collins or De Valera? And that's just not helpful, folks. Okay, let's let's try to take Collins and De Valera out of it as much as possible and, and try to look at the issues involved back then. Yeah, um, particularly in the online world, people are looking for information that reinforces the prejudices that they already hold, particularly in their, their hatred of either Collins or De Valera. And let's be honest, that's not helpful. Let's, let's try to knock that on the head as much as possible. It's not helpful and it's not very rewarding for the people involved. Like, you know, if you are interested in this period, go in with an open mind. There's really interesting information there that, you know, might surprise you. Yeah. Absolutely. I might challenge some of the views that you already have. Let's hope so. And finally, I suppose, with regard to Northern Ireland, I mean, what is the way forward there regarding commemoration? Is there a way forward? Well, like, I'd, I'd hate to think that, you know, for example, Catholic schools, if the SDLP and Sinn Féin are, are leading the march on this, don't get involved in their own way. Like, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to parades or, or like, you know, big events commemorating the 100th anniversary of the founding of Stormont and Northern Ireland. But it would be sad to think that there wasn't a real emphasis in the nationalist community on like understanding this period, on learning about it. Doesn't mean you agree with partition or defending in Northern Ireland, but like there's an awful lot of information there, an awful lot of events that are really worth looking into, and it gives you context and understanding of what happened in the following century. Yeah, well, obviously, I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, uh, it, it does remind me a little bit of uh, apparently in the 1969 riots, uh, Carl Goulding told the IRA Army Council, "This is not an opportunity for revolution; it's an opportunity for education." <laughs> it's an inappropriate uh, remark that was one way to look at it yeah the Cahill Goulding sentiments were, were right for 2021 if not for 1969 perhaps yeah see that's the thing like if you were going to have a debate something like you know you, you can see them online things like the, the West Belfast Festival and, and things like that where they you do get, great work by the way they do great work and some really really good stuff up on YouTube uh, where you get people from all sides of the community and you have you know politicians or historians or commentators and like you know if they go in and they're debating something was partition right was it right to set up stormont and a separate parliament for the north obviously people aren't going to agree with that but you might tease out different arguments like you know there probably would be a lot of people in the north who uh, believe that Ulster was six counties and the Ulster Unionist Council only ever covered six counties rather than the whole nine counties of Ulster. And like, how does that tie into like, you know, the the oral histories and the folk memories of unionists from Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan and what they thought partition would be and what they thought devolved government for Ulster was going to be, particularly in the light of the Solemn League and Covenant and the setting up the UVF, like their concept of no home rule for Ireland or no home rule for Ulster uh, didn't involve three of Ulster's nine counties being left behind. And so we should hear their story. And also unionists throughout the whole of Ireland who would have viewed partition as a major betrayal.
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I hope the Southern Union story is, is told more often, you know, in the coming years and not again, but from this thing of like, they were right, because that shouldn't enter into it. But just what was their story and what, what happened to them? Yeah, like, you know, listening to other people's perspectives and views from the time doesn't imply that you agree with them. Like you can empathize with people and you can hear their stories and it does give you a much fuller understanding of the history of the period but like not reading them and ignoring them it doesn't aid your understanding yeah so i mean i guess in, in closing i mean with, with regard to the north i suppose the best that you can hope for is open discussion but a uh, shared commemoration i don't think so i think you're right there john so until next time that was myself Carl brennan and my co-host John Dorney from theirstory.com. If you'd like to listen to any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. All the archive of our past episodes are also available on whichever platform you get your podcasts on, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of them. And if you are on your podcast platform, please take a moment just to rate and review the show. It really does help. So if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's probably the best way to contact us as well. You can send us a message. It's at Irish History Pod. You can follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. So until next time, thanks very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.